All right, we'll go ahead and get started. How are you all? Good evening. Happy All Souls Day. So I, I'm really excited to be here. In case you weren't here last time I taught, my name is Mark Heffley. I'm the Director of Adult Faith Formation and Evangelization at the parish. And I, I love RCIA. I love everything about it. So glad to be here. And it's appropriate to be talking about death judgment, heaven, and hell today because it's All Souls Day, day when we remember those who have passed and offer our prayers on their behalf, which we'll talk about with purgatory in just a little bit. So uh, the plan for tonight, I'll talk a little bit about death and judgment. And then uh, we'll do some uh, time for Q&A. The, the QR code for the anonymous questions is on the top of that handout, so you can scan it. Or you can go on the Parish app and go to more and then forms and you, you can find the link to the questions that way. And of course you can ask just the old fashioned way too. Thanks Father. But let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts. Fill us with your joy and your love and your peace. Help us to understand the mystery of, of death, the life you offer us. And we entrust this class to our Mother Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Okay, you guys ready? So first thing, death. Death. So there's there's few things that are so like boringly commonplace as death. I mean, we all know that we're gonna die in the end. And uh, death sparks a few different kinds of reactions in people. So you can have, you know, kind of the neurotic flight, the the fear of death, trying to escape it at all costs. That's one attitude towards death. Another attitude is kind of a, an acquiescence to death. Uh, a domestication of death, kind of greeting it with open arms as a as a release from a prison, kind of uh, attaining freedom. I remember when um, Robin Williams committed suicide, a meme was going around of the genie, uh, and it said something like, now you're finally free. So that's, that, you know, clearly illustrates that second attitude towards death, this domestication of it. So today, uh, I'm actually going to dwell for some time on death um, because the Christian attitude towards death is slightly different than that because, uh, for very good reasons. So we'll, we'll dwell on that for a little bit. We can, we can go first to um, death in the Old Testament and how it's portrayed there. So death is viewed not, not like there's no neurotic flight from death. It's not treated with abundance of fear, but there's also not uh, an acquiescence to death, kind of a greeting it with open arms. Rather, what you see is death is really the end of the person. It's the end of the person's communion with other people. It's the end of the person's communion with God. There's no, there's no remembrance of God in Hades or in Sheol. For, for the old, in the Old Testament, you see the term Sheol, see death. It's really the same thing, hell, um, same thing, death, hell, Sheol. So there's no remembrance of God in Sheol. There's no praise of God. It's just, it's just the end. 
Now, my favorite, my favorite discussion of, of death comes in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has got to be one of my favorite books because I'm a melancholic by nature. I'm just prone to be depressed. And oh man, Ecclesiastes is just, just my book. Any other melancholics? No? Yeah? Father Walmire? Oh, it's great. So Ecclesiastes uh, discusses several problems with, with life in the world. And one of the, the main problems is death. Because you spend your whole life working really hard. You amass a lot of wealth, accomplishments. You build these relationships. But then in the end, you just die. And then everything you work so hard to build up eventually just falls apart too. <laughs> and so, so Ecclesiastes just ends with, it's just, it's just vanity and pacing after wind. So death, uh, that, uh, that kind of attitude towards death is also, uh, we find it in Newman, John Henry Newman, he's one of my favorite saints. He said, man rises to fall. He tends to dissolution from the moment he begins to be. Such two are his works, the noblest efforts of his genius. Outlive him by many centuries, but they tend to an end, and that end is dissolution. All just vanity, chasing after wind. So why death? Why death? Uh, when I was teaching and outside of teaching, I would often hear the uh, kind of the idea that life is just a test. So the, the real deal is heaven. And God could have made us in heaven, but he wanted kind of a staging ground, kind of test us to see if we're worthy for heaven. So he created the earth. And then he gave us the Bible, which is the basic instructions before leaving Earth to kind of like guide us through this interim period. But really, the, the goal is heaven. I mean, there's some truth to that. I mean, there's some elements of testing in this life. Uh, plenty of opportunities where we, where we can decide whether we'll be faithful to God or not. But that's not really the meat and potatoes of life. Uh, it's like marriage. There's plenty of opportunities in marriage to test your fidelity. But you wouldn't say the whole point of marriage is test your fidelity. That's why I married my wife, to see how faithful I could be. No, you, you, marry, you marry somebody because you want to spend your life with that person. And then the testing is just kind of like a, uh, you know, it comes along with it as kind of a, a tag along. Same thing with life. God intended life for life's sake. He wanted us to be alive. Now, I, I'm a melancholic, so it's hard for me to recognize this sometimes. But life is good. God intended life for its own sake, and he doesn't delight in death. Uh, we read in the Book of Wisdom, God did not make death, and he does not delight in the death of the living, for he created all things that they might exist. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel reports the words of God, saying that he doesn't even rejoice in the death of the wicked. So why death? If death wasn't original part of God's plan. Why death? Well, because we, we kind of broke things. So it really comes down to sin. And I think Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis, portray this really well in a, in a poetic and deep way. In the story of Adam and Eve, where they take the fruit, they eat it. And then by doing that, they, they break themselves. They recognize they're naked. They, they break their relationship with each other. Uh, they break their relationship with God. They hide from him. Uh, they're expelled from the garden. And they break their relationship with, with the whole creative order. Now Adam has to toil in the dirt. And it's not going to produce food. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. Uh, Eve is going to bear children with pain. And so 
so that poetically expresses a, a deep truth about about sin that it harms our relationship with other people and harms our relationship with God. And <clears throat> so this is this is kind of an illustration of of sin and death. So I so we read in, in Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, is this a case where God is up there with arbitrary rules and like a lightning bolt and just ready to zap somebody? So I'll, I'll give you an illustration. So I want you to decide whether this is a reasonable rule and whether the consequence is a reasonable consequence. So don't speed. And if you speed, you get a $50 ticket. So first, is that a reasonable rule? Yeah? Is it a reasonable consequence? Is it too high, too low? Should they be thrown in prison? All right, most people would recognize that as a reasonable rule. Um, what about another one? If you mow your lawn on the east side of town on the first Tuesday of the month, well, you can't do that. That's the rule. And if you do, you get your house burned down. Is that a reasonable rule? No, unless there's more information. You know, there's something unique about the east side of town and the whatever Tuesday I said. Is that a reasonable consequence? No. No, and it could be something else. It could be a fine. You could get your lawnmower taken away. You know, a lot, of, a lot is up for grabs. Okay, one more. And this is a rule I have for my children. Don't stick a metal fork in the electrical outlet. If you do, you'll get zapped. Is that a reasonable rule? What about the consequence? Yeah, yeah, you notice something different about that. It's not, it's not an arbitrary punishment that I create, unless I'm up there with a taser, you know? <laughs> I told you. That would... It's not an arbitrary punishment. It just flows from the nature of the act. You stick the fork in and you get zapped. So I'll propose to you that that's the same case with sin and death. That it's not an arbitrary rule or an arbitrary punishment, but rather it just flows from the nature of sin that it leads to death. So this is what I'm trying to illustrate here. So think first of what God is. God is, let me make sure I'm out of the way here of Emily. God is a communion of persons. God is good with a capital G. God is life. God is love. Sin, every sin, involves a turning away from God and ultimately a turning in on oneself. So, uh, you know, hatred clearly involves a turning away from communion with others, turning away from love towards this other person, turning in on oneself, rooting on that hatred. Lust, instead of opening oneself up for genuine communion with another person in love, you turn in on yourself and use that other person for your own gratification. 
it's the case with every every kind of sin to varying degrees. Clearly, um, not every kind of sin does this to the same degree, but every sin does it to a certain extent. Now, the the ultimate fulfillment of this, this turning in on yourself away from communion, goodness, love, and life is isolation and death. And this is really, this is death. Death is all the, the door you walk through all alone. It's the ultimate isolation. And so it's, yeah, his natural fulfillment is, is Sheol in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which is the same thing as hell, is the same thing as death before Jesus. So this is before Jesus. Now the good news, let me make sure I didn't skip anything. Yep. The good news is that God, the God who is communion, life, goodness, uh, love, he enters into that isolation through his death on the cross and his descent into hell. We say that in the creed every Sunday, he descended into hell. That's a big, that's a big deal. What is that saying? He's, it's saying he, he really died. He really experienced death. He entered into that state of ultimate isolation from God, from, from others and, and in, a, in a mysterious way because he's divine from, from God. He cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, he's quoting the first line of, of a psalm, but he's also expressing a genuine experience that he's having. On behalf of all of us, he's taking on this God-forsakenness in some mysterious way, entering into that isolation. Uh, it makes me think of, um, uh, there was a story, maybe you've heard it before, there was an a earthquake in Armenia, and there was this dad who would take his son every day to school, and, and at the gates of the school, he would say, um, I'll be here waiting for you when you come out. And this one day, the day of the earthquake, he dropped his son off at school and said, I'll be here for you when you come out. Goes home a few hours later, huge earthquake. He runs to the school and it's flattened, like not a brick on another. And so he and several other parents start digging through the rubble, trying to find survivors. Uh, an hour or so go by, uh, the other parents give up. You know, there's lots of crying. Uh, even the firefighters come and say, you got to stop. We'll get to it. We'll take care of it. You go home. But they had lots of other emergencies to take care of, and they didn't really think there was any survivors. So the dad said, no, I told my son I'd be here. It came out. And so he keeps digging and digging, and his hands get bloodied, and he's covered in dirt. And people at this point start trying to pull him away, thinking he's lost his mind in grief. And he pushes them aside and says, I told my son I'd be here for him. And so he keeps digging and digging. Twelve hours go by. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't slept. He keeps digging. Twenty-four hours go by. Finally, I think it was around the 36th hour, he lifts the brick and he hears a voice saying, See, I told you my dad would come for us. And he not only saved the son, but saved a handful of his other classmates um, from the rubble. There was a there was a priest in Mexico. I like this story. Some, I, I forget exactly the region of Mexico, but uh, someplace where there was um, problems with kidnappings. And this mom brought her child, her young daughter, to come visit the priest. And while they were chatting inside the church, uh, the, the young girl was playing on the steps of the church. 
um, to, to give her mom some privacy. And while they're talking, they hear a lot of commotion outside and screaming and they come out and they discover the little girl has just been kidnapped by a group of men in this car and they're, they're driving off down the road. The priest, without hesitation, jumps in his car, drives them down, runs them off the road, gets out of the car, pulls a baseball bat out of the trunk, beats all the men with a baseball bat, and then grabs a girl and brings her back to her, her mom. I mean, that's, that's an illustration, you know, a, a weak one, but gives us a glimmer of the father's love for us. The father's like the father digging through the rubble in Armenia and like that priest going to, you know, driving, driving the, the kidnappers off the road out of love for us. So Jesus descends into our isolation and our death. But, 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 this is, this is the clincher. So Jesus is not only completely innocent, but he's also a divine person in full communion of love and life with the Father. And this does something. This changes the very nature of death because he enters into our isolation, yes, but he transforms it. So now it's no longer isolation. It's brought, Jesus brings God's communion in life into death. Boom! Rises from the grave. Oh, this is this is a big deal. Big deal. I know you're all wooing on the inside. This is this is huge. So now when we die in Christ, united to Christ, we don't enter into the isolation of hell like before Christ. We enter into the communion and life offered in Jesus Christ, and we too rise from the dead. And we begin this with baptism. And through the sacramental signs of water and the word, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You die in Christ. You enter into that death of Christ. And then you rise with Christ too. And already now, you begin to live the very life of God where God dwells in you and you dwell in God. Man. Cool stuff stuff uh you're anointed with oil uh before your baptism and there was this one of the church fathers i forget who it was but he preached this sermon basically you're about to get baptized means you're about to do battle you're about to enter into death and fight leviathan in the waters so we cover we anoint you with oil like we cover an athlete or a warrior with oil before he goes into battle because you're gonna i just thought that was poetic expressing the the real truth of what's going on that you're dying with christ and rising with him but with that being said uh there's still the possibility of one if one even to the last minute whenever that is we don't know refuses the life and communion offered in jesus christ then they reject what's offered in jesus's death and resurrection and the possibility of hell is still open. So what we refer to as hell as the hell of damnation is this, or what scripture refers to as the second death, um, the rejection of... So Jesus has transformed Sheol, 
that hell, that death, but one can reject the communion offered there and still still enter into their self-imposed isolation of, of hell. All right. Now, let's come back to the attitude towards death. So what is the Christian attitude towards death? If this is how we view, if this is all true about what Jesus has done, what's our attitude? So I'm going to show you a couple poems written by Christians. See which one you think best, best grabs hold of it. So one is kind of the, the fighting attitude. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Anybody seen Inner Sailor? It's repeated a lot. All right, so that's one, kind of the fighter's attitude towards that. Rage against it, fight against it. Another one is this, kind of the happy thumbs up attitude towards that. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. All is well. Nothing is hurt. Nothing is lost. One brief moment and all will be as it was before. And then the last one is just my wife's favorite. She just loves it when this is said in movies. I'm not leaving. I'll always be with you in your hearts and in your memories. So which one, which one do you think best expresses the Christian attitude? Not a rhetorical question. I actually want your opinions. You don't think it's the first one? Why, why don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does seem rather bleak. You don't see much hope expressed in it. Okay. All right, what about the second one? Anybody say yay? No? Too boring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it is a big deal. Yeah, you lose a loved one and that's a big deal. That's not nothing. Nothing is hurt. I'm hurt. So yeah. All right. And this... In my opinion, just doesn't doesn't come close. It's worse than the other two because it Christian death is so much more than just remaining in your memories. You're gonna rise to life again. I actually, I mean, there's room for disagreement on this. I like the first one. As as bleak and and um well bleak as you said, as it is. But either way. Whatever, whatever expression you think best captures it. Christian attitude is not neurotic flight. It's not a run from death as, as the greatest evil ever. Um, but it's not, also not a greeting of death with open arms and a domestication. Oh, it's nothing at all. I think there's a good illustration of this. Uh, Immaculate Lubegiza, has anybody happened to see her speak or read her book? So she, she was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide in the uh, mid-1990s. She was, oh, I think a high schooler or college age at the time. She was a young woman. And uh, they got news that one tribe, uh, the majority tribe, the Hutus, were slaughtering the minority tribe, the Tutsis. And she, she was a Tutsi. And um, news was spreading that this was going on. And so uh, a lot of people in the surrounding area came to her dad uh, for advice 
um, because he was respected as a really wise person. And she says he came out to talk to them with a rosary in his hand. So you can tell he's a pretty devout guy. And he says, if, if this is not from the government and it's just a small group of people doing this, then we can stand against it and we can win. But, and people were starting to get happy. And he says, but if this is from the government, he will be killed. And people start, start panicking. But he says, no, 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 don't panic. How many people get the gift of knowing when they're going to die? What we should do now is pray to God to enlighten us if we have any unrepented sins and ask him for the grace to repent of those sins so that we can be truly prepared to meet Jesus when we die. That, I think, is, is a beautiful expression of the Christian attitude towards death. So he's confronting it as a real evil. It's not like, hey, woo, we're all going to die. This is great. He's not running out revealing that he's a, he's a Tutsi. He even sends off Immaculate to hide because he recognizes that life is good and death is bad. So it's not greeting death with open arms, but it's also not a frantic flight from death. It's taking it seriously, but also... If we're going to die, let's die prepared. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, he even says, I, I don't want to die quietly in my sleep, which is often an expression, like a lot of people hold this hope. I just want to die peacefully and painlessly in my sleep. He says, no, I don't want that. I want to be fully awake and I want to be prepared for death so that I can, I can pray, so that I can receive communion and the last rites, you know, so that I can so I can be awake. So Christian attitude towards death is not these two, but rather it's it's characterized by hope in the resurrection. And there's a couple biblical stories that I think illustrate this really well. It's kind of the foundation of our hope. One is the sacrifice of Isaac. So you, you guys know the story. Abraham uh, takes his, his son Isaac and God tells him to kill Isaac as a sacrifice. And this is a really, this is a dark passage. Um, not one that you find in children's Bibles. There's a, there's a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote a book on, on this, and he offered some reflections, meditations on the story. And one was, uh, Abraham is dumbfounded at this, but at this request, but he's obedient. And so he binds Isaac and he's going to kill him. And Isaac starts crying out to him saying, why would God want, want this to happen? And, and Abraham has this a little, little aside and he thinks, God, I don't want him to lose faith in you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make him think this is all. So he turns to Isaac and he says, you think this is God's plan? This is my plan. I hate you and goes to kill him. And then Isaac prays to God for help. And he's like, all right. And at least Isaac didn't lose his faith. Oh, man, that's dark. Completely misunderstands the story. Completely misunderstands it. So what Abraham is doing is actually expressing the Christian attitude towards death. Why? Because of Genesis 15. Something very crucial happens in Genesis 15. So 
Abraham offers up Isaac in Genesis 22. So a few chapters earlier, something pivotal happens. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God had made many promises to Abraham. One of them was that he would have a child, and through that child, he would have many descendants. And Abraham, him and his wife are really old, and he's like, oh, I'm not going to have a child. My, my nephew Lot will be my, my, um, my heir. Well, and Lot doesn't work out. My slave will be my heir. Well, that doesn't work out. He sleeps with Hagar, uh, his Egyptian slave. Has a son, Ishmael. No, Ishmael is not going to be your heir. You're going to have a son with Sarah, your wife, and you'll, his name will be Isaac. And through Isaac... You will have all these descendants. Then God makes this, this, this covenant with, with Abraham, which is a solemn oath, like a marriage. Marriage is a kind of covenant. And Abraham does something really weird. He gets a bunch of animals and he cuts them in half and puts the halves of the carcass on either side and then the blood is in the middle. And then God passes through the middle of the blood and makes his covenant. Now, what's, what's the deal with the animals and the blood? Well, this is how ancient peoples would make covenants with each other, whether it's warring tribes or otherwise. You would, you would have the representatives come together in between the slaughtered animals, their carcasses, stand in the blood and swear their covenant. And what it meant was if you break your covenant, you will become like that dead animal. You'll die. God stands in the middle of the blood and makes his covenant to Abraham saying, through Isaac, you will have all these descendants. And if not, I will die and become like this dead goat. Now, is that actually possible for God to die and become like a... No, but God is just making it clear in a way that Abraham can understand that there is no way God is going to be unfaithful to his promises. Abraham will have descendants and he will have these descendants through Isaac. And then what does he command Abraham to do? Kill Isaac. If something happens to Isaac, what happens to God? He's dead. He's a liar. He's dead. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an impossibility. So what God is, is calling Abraham to is a radical trust in God's faithfulness. That even if... Isaac were to die, if God is to be faithful, he would have to raise Isaac from the dead. And this is what the letter to the Hebrews says, later Christian writing reflecting on this, that Abraham even hoped, even believed that God would raise him from the dead. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. We see this later in the Maccabean period. In 2 Maccabees, oh, this is a sweet book, if you haven't read it yet. Uh, there's several martyrs because the Greeks conquered the Jews and they inf- they make the Jews practice Greek practices, um, not get circumcised, uh, uh, sacrifice to the Greek gods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Some Greeks, I mean, some Jews do it and they become Greek. Uh, other other Jews don't. And an example of this is the mother and her seven sons. Maybe you've heard this story or people talk about it. Uh, this mother has seven sons, and they're brought before the Greek official, and they're commanded to sacrifice to the Greek god. And one by one, each of the older sons refuses to be unfaithful to God, and one by one, they're all killed in front of their mother. And then it gets to the youngest son, and the official doesn't want to kill the youngest son, 
feels kind of bad about all of this. And so he makes these promises to him and tries to sweet talk him. And the, the mother starts to get nervous and she pulls him aside and says, don't you dare do this. Look at your brothers. They all died for, for God. If you, if you turn your back on God, I will not see you in the resurrection. But if you die for God, he will raise you up and I will be with you again. And the son comes out with this courageous speech and he gets tortured and killed uh, too. Why? Not because they view death as this release from the prison of the body. Rather, they trust in God's faithfulness. That God is so faithful to his people that if they're faithful, he will even have to raise them from the That is, That is radical trust. So that's the... That's the Christian attitude towards death. Uh, we also see this in a couple uh, more modern. Am I telling too many stories? Okay. I love, I love these. So uh, in the uh, turn of the 20th century, there was a revolution in, in Mexico and a, and a government took over that was anti-Catholic. I mean, anti-Christian, but a majority Catholic. And they started a systematic persecution of Catholics, killing priests, um, forbidding, you know, shutting down churches, forbidding sacraments, all this. Some people fought against it, and they started this army to fight against the, the government's army. Uh, this boy, uh, Miguel Pro, bless him, or no, sorry, mixing up the names, Jose Sanchez. Uh, I think he's saint now. Saint Jose Chan Sanchez, he tried to join the army, but he was too, too young, so they made him a flag bearer. So he goes out in one of these battles as a flag bearer. He gets captured and uh, brought to this camp and they torture him and say, if you just say death to Christ, then we'll let you go. And he refuses. They torture him more. They give him another chance. He refuses and says, viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. Uh, they kill another child in front of him, hang him from a tree and make him watch to scare him. And gives them another chance to say death to Christ and we'll let you live. And he says, Viva Cristo Rey. Well, eventually they take him to the street. They cut the bottom of his feet. They spread glass and salt on the street and make him walk down like in this procession. Um, and they bring him up to his grave and they put a gun to him and say, this is your last chance. Say death to Christ or we'll kill you. And he says, Viva Cristo Rey. They shoot him, and as he's dying, he makes a cross in the ground with his I forget how old he was. Like 12. He's really young. Uh, the other one here, during the same time period in Mexico, uh, Miguel Pro, he was a priest. Now, clearly in this time, you couldn't go around like in your clerics as a priest because you would be killed. You would have to celebrate Mass in secret, hear confessions in secret. All the while, you would have to trust people with your lives because there might be a spy and they would just rat you out and you get killed. And uh, he, he became rather notorious among the, the police. They were trying to hunt him down for a long time. But he came up with these elaborate disguises. He would dress up as a woman. He would dress up as just a normal dude. He would dress up as, uh, my favorite was a high-ranking police officer. And one time, these, these, uh, the police come looking for Miguel Pro, And they come by and <laughs> Father... Pro comes out dressed up as this police officer, says, what are you doing? 
because we're looking for, for Father Pro or Miguel Pro. They probably didn't call him Father. We're looking for Miguel Pro, and he starts chewing them out for not finding them, finding him quicker, calling him slackers and, you know, go get him, and they, and they run off. Well, he, eventually he does get caught, and he gets brought before a firing squad. And th this is a real picture of him before the firing squad. And they gave him the same choice that they gave to Jose Sanchez. Just say death to Christ and we'll let you live. And um, he says, let me pray. And he goes over and he kneels on the ground and he prays. And you can Google that picture, see him praying. And then he stands up and he spreads his arms out. And he says, viva Cristo Rey. And they shoot him. Now, what was inspiring Jose Sanchez and Miguel Pro was the hope resurrection. This life is good. They're not escaping this life. God wants them to live. But they trust in God's faithfulness that if they remain faithful to God, God will even raise them from the dead. Now, there's, there's um, three three things that attack Christian hope and, and pervert our, our perception of death. Uh, one is presumption. So the kind of a Christian idea of, of hope is two-sided. So on one side is, is God's faithfulness, and then the other side is our faithfulness, our cooperation, our openness to God's grace and mercy and love. And so presumption, each of these neglects one of those sides. Presumption neglects our side, and just has God's faithfulness. So I, I can do whatever I want, sin and sin boldly, and um, God will save me. Uh, that's a distortion of Christian hope because through sin, you turn away from God and his offering of life and love and mercy. Um, and so if you turn away, you can't, you can't receive it. So presumption is this distortion. Uh, despair neglects God's faithfulness and puts too much emphasis on our faithfulness. And then you look at your life and all your failings and all your faults and you think, oh, I'm too, I'm too far gone. Or, you know, there's no possible way that I can live up to the high callings of Christ. There's no way I can be a saint. So I'm hopeless. Despair is actually the, the most dangerous sin because it's, I mean, it closes one off to salvation because it, it refuses, it causes you to refuse to turn to God for mercy because you don't think you can have it. Now, uh, asadia is less extreme. It's, it's more of a common temptation for people. Asadia is a, is a sadness and, a, and a, a kind of a laziness in response to the calling of the gospel. So you see, you hear Jesus's calling in the gospel, you see it expressed in the lives of the saints, and you look at it and say, ah, maybe tomorrow. Ah, that's Asadia. Oh, man, I am beset with Asadia every day. Oh, maybe, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. And this, this isn't necessarily just common laziness because it can go hand in hand with being a workaholic because you, you turn to distractions, you turn to work, anything that can, that can occupy your attention because you don't, you don't want to address the commands, of the, the call of the gospel at that moment. Man. Oh, 
But you see, if you give in to Athadia too much, then it keeps chipping away, chipping away, and, and it could, and it's, you know, when it's full-blown, lead to despair. All right, so death. Hope of the resurrection. All right, judgment, and then we'll take a break. So we talk about two kinds of judgment uh, in our faith. We talk about the particular judgment, which is the judgment of you at the moment of your death. And then we talk about a general judgment later, which we'll talk about later in the class. So particular judgment is um, coming face to face with Jesus and being confronted with the truth about yourself. Coming face to face with Jesus and being confronted with the truth about yourself, that's particular judgment. It's not God up there with a list of all your good things and bad things and he tallies them up. It's like you standing in front of an illuminated mirror where all the good about you and all the evil stand out. So think of who Jesus is again. Jesus is perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is perfect love, perfect goodness, fullness of truth. All those aspects of your life in which you conformed your life to God's life show at the moment of judgment that you're ready to join into God's life. You're already participating in the exchange of love and goodness. You've devoted your life to it. All those aspects of your life where you've turned away and shut yourself off from goodness and love will also become illuminated. Um, it's, we get glimpses of this in, in moments of our life when, we, when we're convicted of, of sin. So there was one particular moment I still remember when I was a, a teenager. I, I was trying to follow Jesus, at least to a certain extent, but there was also a serious sin that I was struggling with. But I kept turning a blind eye to it, thinking, ah, it's, you know, lying to myself is not really a big deal, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this one moment, this one day, when it just hit me. It was like this veil was removed from my eyes, and I saw for the first time just how bad it was. And yeah, it felt, it felt horrible. But it led to this genuine healing because I could uh, finally be free of it, spark this conversion of me in me, and I could also take it to confession for the first time. And over time, I was I was freed of it. So it was it was a healing thing. Um, but there's another reaction that we can have to to those moments of of being convicted over sin. It can it can cause us. You know, God gives us those moments in order to call us out, saying, hey, I have, I have the medicine for you. I, I want to heal you. It's going to be painful, but I want to heal you. Um, but sometimes we misunderstand those moments, or we don't want the healing. And those moments can inspire us not to, not to repentance, not to turning towards God, but to turn in on ourselves, to become angry, to hate ourselves, to you know, whatever, whatever else. That's, that is kind of a glimpse of what judgment will be like at the moment of our death. When the full truth about ourselves, good or bad, is revealed, which can either inspire us to turn in repentance toward, or it can inspire us to turn in on ourselves and choose isolation, self-hatred, and rejection of the life offered in Christ, which is... Now, that choice is offered 
throughout your life. I mean, it's made by you throughout your lifetime uh, and it's solidified in death. So Jesus, so entering into heaven is entering into the life of God, this exchange of love and, and goodness and communion with other people. That life is hard. And if you try to live that now, that is hard. I struggle to open myself up and not close off to my wife. I struggle to not close off in anger and selfishness towards my children. I struggle with my coworkers. I struggle with random strangers I meet on the street. I mean, this life, the divine life is hard. I mean, it's like Mother Teresa kind of life. Just opening, selfless opening up in life. So selfless opening up of your life in love to other people. Oh, that's, that's pretty hard. And Jesus gives us uh, some specifics on what we'll be judged on. Another way to say that is specifics that we can reflect on, uh, specific ways that we can start living the life of God now. If we fail in these, we're failing in living the life of God, um, and we won't want heaven when we die. We'll choose against it. The one is uh, Matthew 7. Uh, not everyone who Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father. Only the one who does the will of the Father. It's not enough to just use our words. We have to do the will of the Father. What this means is we have to turn out of ourselves, open ourselves up to the Father in obedience, in an attitude of receiving from the Father his will and responding in love and obedience to him. So it's already, it's already living the life of heaven, of opening up, listening, and responding in, in love. Now, more concretely, Jesus spells this out. Well, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? Well, we turn to Matthew 18, 23 and following. Jesus tells this parable. Uh, you, you've heard it before where one guy owes his master a whole lot of money and he goes before the master and he and he begs for mercy and the master absolves the entire debt for him but then that guy goes out and he confronts one of his friends who owes him just a little tiny amount of money and he beats him and he throws him into prison because the guy can't pay <clears throat> and then the master finds out about it and says and he throws the guy into prison to so this this parable is is about, um, of course, our uh, uh, offering of forgiveness to other people. If we don't offer forgiveness, we will not be forgiven. Why? Because the uh, withholding forgiveness is like is that turning in on yourself and rejecting communion and love with others. Immaculate Ilobagiza, you know the the one in the uh, she she her father sent her away to go hide in a, a Protestant pastor's house. She was up there with several other women for days upon days upon days in a tiny bathroom hidden off the master bedroom. And even the Protestant pastor's kids couldn't know about it because they, they, were, they were Hutus and they, they might go report it to people. Um, so they were, they were hidden there, they couldn't talk. They sometimes got food, other days not because they would only get food the 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 guy couldn't let anybody become suspicious, even as kids. So couldn't like prepare whole meals and bring it up into the bathroom. 
would look a little fishy, so he would have to scrape leftovers out of the trash and you know whatever he could do. Um, so she she describes. You can read her book. Oh, I forget what it's called. It'll come to me later. You can just Google Mac. She describes this whole experience, and she um, she she's in this bathroom. They're sitting on each other. They can't lie down. They can't they can barely sleep. Uh, she hears people screaming and yelling death threats to the Tutsis uh, in the streets. She said the only time she had peace was when she was praying the rosary. When she wasn't praying the rosary, she would just start feeling dread and hatred and anger. So she would just pray the rosary like all day and all night, except for the little bit that she could she could sleep. And she would reflect on heaven and how good it would be if she was to die that she would go to this good place. But then she would also call to mind those sayings of Jesus about forgiveness. And when those came to mind, she passed those aside because she's like, I'm not in a place, a state where I can forgive. Jesus, there's no way I can do that. And she, she felt this gentle nudge, this gentle conviction saying, if you don't forgive, you can't enter that good place. And so over time, with grace, Immaculate opened herself up and really allowed grace to offer forgiveness to, to these people. So you can think about that if you're struggling with forgiveness. You can, you can read Immaculate's, Immaculate's story. A lot of people have found um, inspiration and urge to offer forgiveness because, for example, so that's forgiveness. In another parable, Jesus talks about judgment, and he separates the goats from the sheep, and the the good the people who are invited into the kingdom. Uh, he says, "Come into the kingdom because I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me." And they they answered back, "Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or naked or sick and in prison?" And the Lord says. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And then he turns to those rejected from the kingdom and says, you did not feed me. You did not offer me clothes. You did not visit me. And they said, Why, when did we ever not do this? That whatever you didn't do to the least, you didn't do to me. We can't enter into the life of communion of love and mercy, which the, the Trinity is, if throughout our life, we close ourselves off to our neighbor, and especially to the poor. And then the last, but most important one, Jesus, of course, says, uh, you have to believe in me. You have to believe in me to have eternal life. We have to open ourselves up to the life and grace and mercy offered in Jesus Christ so that we're in communion with him when we die, so that we can join him in the resurrection. If we refuse to join ourselves to Jesus in his, in his death, then we refuse to join him in resurrection. That's the basic logic behind it. So we make a choice. We make a choice for heaven or for hell, but this choice is formed by your whole life. Uh, how, you know, how much we have disposed ourselves to joining that life of God. Um, and this means that 
Uh, but it can also be decided with one serious choice. This is what we call mortal sin. Uh, when you do something seriously wrong, so not like stealing a paperclip, but like depriving a worker of his pay would be a serious, um, serious offense. It has to be grievous. You have to know what you're doing and you have to fully will it. Like it can't be you murdered somebody in your sleep or you were drugged um, against your will and forced at gunpoint. So a choice like that is you are consciously redirecting your life away from God. And God respects that choice. And effectively, you close yourself off to his, to his love and mercy until you, unless, or until you reorient your life back to God, which we call repent um, and receive his mercy. Now, quick clarification, the last thing before the, the break. Uh, we often talk about freedom. And God respecting our freedom. I want to clarify, though, freedom does not mean the ability to choose between good and wrong, good and evil. That's not freedom. That's that's an that's a ability of choice that we have. True freedom is the ability to do the good. Choosing evil is just a perversion of freedom, and it actually shackles our freedom. So, a, a, a illustration from my own life. I hear the baby crying in the middle of the night. I turn over and I pretend to still be sleeping. So my wife goes and gets the baby. Do I like that about myself? No, I recognize in that moment, the good that I should do is get out of bed and go, and go take care of that baby. But I am shackled by my own selfishness that I, yeah, yes, you should do it. But I'm shackled by my own selfishness that I, I feel like I can't. I can't do it. I'm not free. Whereas my wife, on the other hand, she hears that baby crying and boom, she's out of bed without a hesitation because she is truly free. She's free. She knows the good that she needs to do and she can do it with joy. Well, often, sometimes <laughs> with joy and at least a lot more joy than I would have. Um, so this is, um, this is why... Yeah, never mind. That's an aside. So that's true freedom, which we can only have in Christ, who offers us the freedom to pursue the good, um, which we couldn't with. All right. Cool. Cool, cool. Death. Judgment. All right. We'll come back with hell. Purgatory. And we're ending with heaven, though, which, you know, on the positive side of life. Okay. Go take a break. <laughs>